Welcome to One of One, a new show from Soika, the curated NFT photography marketplace. Each week, we bring you conversations with artists and personalities from the Web3 space. This is your host, Pam Voth. Welcome to One of One from Soika. Today, I'm talking with Steve Bennett, a talented photographer and avid collector of NFT photography. In fact, he's currently ranked as the fourth highest collector in terms of volume on Sloika. He also has multiple sold-out drops on Sloika and only a few additions left in his current inventory. Steve's passion for photography began more than 40 years ago during the era of film cameras and processing. Today, his work falls into two categories of traditional photos and composite images that fuse photographs of natural and human-made elements into surreal and imaginary worlds. He has lots of experience presenting his work in print and multimedia formats. Steve is also someone I consider to be a very good business person when it comes to selling his work. Let's see what we can learn from him. Welcome, Steve. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a huge Sloika fan, as you know, and happy to mint and collect and intend to keep doing so in the future. That's great. That's great. We love to hear it. And since we've had a chance to talk over the past year or so, I do know that besides being a photographer, you also have a like creative day job. So I can't imagine there's any time of day when you're not being creative. But do you have any hobbies in addition to what you do creatively? Oh, my. Well, yes. My day job when I'm not working on and selling my art is I'm the creative director of a web design and development firm that works with authors and publishers. I've been doing it for 22 years. I am the creative director, and this gives me an opportunity to keep my hand in creative endeavors while my business grows. And it's actually quite aligned to my photographic work. Sometimes for images on a site, we'll use some of my work. So it all it all fits together very nicely. It sounds like all of your hobbies are creative. <laughs> all of my hobbies are creative. I do love bicycling and I'm an avid competitive walker. So Nice. That's great. So going back to your creative practices, can you kind of describe your process between your traditional work and then these composite abstracts that you create? Sure. Well, my traditional work goes back way, way many years. I say I was born in a dark room. I was fortunate that I grew up in a household where we had a dark room. My father was an avid photographer and radiologist, and he used to love watching images get processed. And then I learned how to process film and how to print. And that very first time that I saw an image start to materialize in the developer tray is a moment of magic that I will never never forget. And even today, when I import an image into Lightroom and that pops on the screen, there's a moment of magic. Wow, we can do this. We can actually, you know, through this thing with a lens on it, we can capture a moment in history and it's there. Anyways, that drives me. And I've been doing that for many, many years took a hiatus for graduate school and some other funny career changes. But anyways, it all comes back to photography. And my traditional photography practice is just that. And I focus on macro photography, which I love, particularly focus stacking. I have two drops now on Sloika, one that was a macro collection of native plants. And the goal there was to educate about the importance of growing native as well as the photography itself. Uh, and a composite with 200 different images that were flattened and focus stacked. Moon drops, that sold out fairly quickly. So I love macro photography. And 
it's about revealing worlds that you either ignore or you can't see, or you could see them if you look, but you don't think about it. And to me, that's one of the greatest joys is making small worlds large. And sometimes a large world small, if I bring in the moon or a mountain scene. But anyways, so there's macro photography. I love street photography, and I'm never without my trusted Fuji camera. And it's always paid off. I love photographing around where I live here in the Boston area, but New York or wherever I go, I always have it with me. And then landscape, which when I travel, part of the reason is to do landscape photography. And another is to be with my family. And we've traveled to a lot of wonderful places. So landscape photography comes out of that. And sometimes I'll hire a guide, for example, and the Grand Canyon, I hired the artist in residence to take me out to a place that people would be and without killing myself, witness the first light as well as the last rays of the sun. So landscape is one of the things that I love doing. On the other side, I combine images of technology, infrastructure, landscape, natural elements, macro elements into composites that create alternative worlds. Yes, you can do that today with some AI prompts, but that's not my thing at the moment. And it's all lens-based photography. The works typically will be printed on metal and they can be quite large, four feet, six feet. And a number of them are hanging in corporate lobbies and conferences. I've rented a number of them through various programs to a lot of technology and biotech companies. So the corporate marketplace is where I focus on for those kinds of composites. They've also been in a number of juried shows. So there's two distinct paths here. One, traditional, no messing around with it, and very little processing, okay? And the other is anything goes in terms of compositing, digital collaging, but it is all lens-based and that's something that I pride myself on. So with these two really different approaches, I've seen on your website, you said it's like the real and the imagined world. <laughs> it's like the real, here's how it shows up. And then, you know, the imagined where you take all these elements that are from the real world, but you mush them together in a way that, that creates a whole new composition. I just, I really love your work. I've seen Moondrops, obviously, is one that was really popular, really beautiful. I think when I heard people talking about it in spaces, they were just in awe over all the details that you brought together into that. So how do you decide what to put together and when to stop? Because I've seen the urban, you have seasons, I think there's four different seasons, and it seems like a scene that's shot maybe through a, a window screen, and it's a city behind it with different seasons of sky that go Maybe. above it. Where do you decide what to put together and when to stop putting things in there? <laughs> well, that, that's a good question. And the window screen you're referring to is a series called Metrovolution. And that's been quite successful in terms of gallery displays and IRL sales. So it's not so much that it was a window screen in the city behind it. It was actually crafted from a small piece of window screen that had ice in it. And I said, oh, this is interesting. So I took a, a long macro lens, my longest one, to zero in on the skylights on the top of our house. And through one piece, actually several pieces, when I looked at them, I said, gosh, these look like lights in a city. And I started combining them. And one thing led to another. And probably a good 20 hours later, 
I had actually combined and sculpted an entire city out of it. That's very whimsical. And I got to a point where I said, there's something wrong here. It needs something else. This has been an evolutionary process. So I happened to have a lovely shot of the New York skyline that I took from a departing Amtrak train, and it was perfect. I silhouetted it, put it on top, and voila, we had an evolutionary process. Then I said, no, this is really a metrovolutionary process. And then I said, you know, over time, this changes. So there's one for each season. That's what I, I think you were talking about with that. And when is enough? Well, you just don't know. I mean, what started out as I thought, I don't say this is going to take an hour or two hours, okay? But what seemed like this is going to be an interesting thing to create a building turned out to be probably about 20 hours worth. And then each season added another five onto it. So I think that what to do. So I have a Lightroom catalog that has both finished work and something that I call the component bank. And there are thousands of images in there and they're all keyworded. That took a long time. And basically, I might be thumbing through it. I do a lot of thumbing through the component bank and say, huh, I never thought of that. And what if I combine it with this? And then I'll call this up. The files are layered by work. If you look at the Photoshop files, tons of layers. They're huge. Some of these files are quite large. They could be uh, one to two gigabytes and a little bit clumsy to work with until I flatten them. But anyways, it's a matter of letting it drive. You know, the great painter, Gerhard Richter, who's uh, Gerhard Richter, who has done everything from photorealistic painting to acrylic kind of pores. What an amazing, amazing artist. And he once said that doing a painting is like playing a game of chess with the art. You move, it moves, and eventually you call checkmate and you're done. I modify that a little bit to say that sometimes I call checkmate, other times it calls checkmate. One way or another, you're done. And who knows when that's going to be? Do all of them work? No. Uh, I mean, a lot of them wind up in the whip work in progress file, and I might hit the delete key, or I might say, eh, three months later, I come back, help me strip out this layer that... This would be interesting. What if we put in that? Or maybe I'll have just shot something that, you know, I didn't have that before. And that might work well on this. So these things are in constant flux. They're like, it's like a website. And then a website is like wet cement. And you can always be moving stuff around and mixing it up a bit. I love the idea of wet cement. That's great. It's like, as long as I still have a chance to adjust it, right? That's great. I like the idea of having these banks, right? There's like component banks. That feels really cool. Because <laughs> it just sounds like you're not out there thinking, I've got to find this one thing to go with that. It's, you're, no. you're kind of open to discovering, it sounds like. Yeah. And I think that's what being creative is all about, is being open to discovery and then being ready to deploy what neuroscientist David Eagleman calls one of the three cognitive strategies that underlie all creative acts. And that is breaking, bending, and blending. And that's essentially what I'm doing when I create these composites. It's what we're all doing when we do any kind of editing. We are breaking something. We're not always blending it, but we're doing something with one of those three. And I was delighted when I read that because I was looking for a way to describe what I do just 
because I was looking for a way to capture my whole body of work. And you had mentioned before that it falls into two camps. I struggled for some time and that, what am I doing? Am I a traditional photographer? Am I some kind of a weird digital collager? And then it struck me one day, well, I could be both. So I came up with a line that is actually, I trademarked it and that made me feel good. It's a federally registered trademark and it's images of the world as seen and reimagined. And for me, it's a great way to organize it. And I don't think today is a world is seen. Maybe tomorrow is a world is reimagined. I'm going out, say, to one of the national parks, and nope, no world is seen here. It might be that when I'm out there, that I'll see something that in and of itself is interesting, but could be combined. For example, petroglyphs, which I have mixed feelings about in terms of would they make interesting elements? Yes. Should we? I'm not sure about that. Same thing with graffiti. Okay. I don't photograph graffiti. That's someone else's art. Or like in Montreal, there are wonderful wall murals everywhere. That's someone else's art there. So I'm not going to appropriate that. There's something sacred about petroglyphs. So I'm not sure. That said, I might see an interesting shadow cast by some cactus plants or some interesting textures in a canyon. And in and of itself, that might make for what I think is a strong photograph. At the same time, in the back of my mind, it's okay. Maybe sometime that will be incorporated into some kind of an urban picture. One of the things that I think about a lot, and I haven't done, I haven't done many photographs like this or composites like this, but this is giving me an idea, is that when we live in the city, we really don't have a sense of geological time. I mean, it's concrete, glass, things are leveled out. Maybe it's on a, might be on a hill, but basically we don't see anything but the outward manifestation of creations by architects and landscape architects and developers. When you're out West and you know from living out there, it's all about geological time. Wherever you go, you have a sense of these strata and the millions of years. Obviously, at a place like the Grand Canyon, you know, it's many, many millions of years. But just wherever you go, you see strata. And that reminds you that you know, we haven't been here that long, okay? And by, by comparison, we're nothing. We're not insignificant, okay? But this is not our show. And I love the idea of combining things like strata representing geological time with concrete glass, etc. And I've got a couple that do that. They've done well in shows. In fact, one's going into a show on climate change next month, and it's called Disconnected. And it's a composite that consists of Death Valley and 35th and 4th in New York at a busy time. And I'm rather pleased with it. But so sometimes I will combine some traditional photographs that was the brisky point with, I don't know, street images to come up with something entirely new. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, speaking of all the steel and glass, and I know that you've sold your work into corporate settings and you have corporate clients, other types of clients. Can you talk about how you marketed your work? And also congratulations on that show, by the way. Oh, <laughs> we, thank you very We much. definitely want, super happy, happy for you for that. But so yeah, how did, how did you get started marketing your work into these corporate settings? 
it was an accident. And as most good things are, and I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is tremendously supportive of the arts. And about six or seven years ago, the city had put out a, a call to artists. I had registered on the list of artists living in Cambridge and it's fine, whatever. And it was, there was a property manager has a number of buildings in the Kendall MIT area. That's our Silicon Valley, right in the back of MIT. All these old factories have been renovated and amidst them, there are also tall, gleaming buildings. And so I said, "Eh, sure, why not? And I put in some of my composites and wasn't I shocked to find the next day that said they want all four of them. And by the way, they need to be, you know, at least 60 inches. I'm going, geez, oh, you know, A, that's big. And B, they wanted him in like a week. And I'm going, oh my God. So there's a number of labs in Rhode Island, which is 90 minutes away, outside of RISD, the Rhode Island School of Design. And one of them was able to accommodate me for a nasty rush charge. But anyhow, the four, one was printed on canvas. And the other three were on metallic paper with a pearl cluster coating on them. They did a gorgeous job. I had to rent a truck to go down and get them. And I actually drove up to the installation and made it just in time. It turns out they they didn't tell us who it was for. It turns out it was Google. So yeah, so I was the Google lobby art until they renovated the building. And that gave me great street cred. The city then placed some of my art elsewhere. I got an honorarium for it and they placed some more, which is good because I figured build up the resume. And I'm also a member of two art associations, one in Cambridge, one in Boston. They both have services where they will rent your art to corporations. And that turned out to be pretty good because the, the rental fees are good. And there was a constant flow of create new work, and they would then place the work and get a nice check every month, which was terrific. I then started working with some art consultancies, which are the way to go. You can't just walk into a building and say, hey, you want my art? It's like, what? It's all done by art consultants or art specifiers is another group there. And I started working with them. And that's worked out very nicely. I typically do single-use licenses, let them print. I'll come in to sign, and that way I don't have to deal with it. Uh, You get less per, but the selling price of these things makes it worthwhile. So right now I'm actively building up my LinkedIn presence, which is where they live. And during the pandemic, you know, nobody was doing anything. But now people are back to work. Some people, buildings are 50% occupied, and that's probably as much as it's going to be. But, you know, they're buying art again. So I've reconnected. And I'm looking forward to building that part of my practice here. On the traditional side, it's largely been through galleries and through juried shows. Pretty much that's how the traditional photography has been sold. And then, of course, there's my foray into the NFT world, which I've been in it for a year. And like everybody else, I'm just figuring it out trying to figure out. That was my next question is kind of, you know, with all of these big 60 inch wide pieces and your art being rented and moved around and and seen in real life in all these places, how does the whole Web3 and NFT space, how does that blend into your art life? I look at it as another venue, another channel. Okay. I mean, if we look at 
all of art that's created and sold and draw a circle. The Web3 NFT world is but a hair, maybe, okay? Over time, that is probably going to change. So it's exciting to be in this little sliver. But I also think that the dynamics are, in some ways, very different. In some ways, it really is a mirror of the physical world. So there's the whole idea of NFTs and everything that goes along with that in terms of blockchains and crypto and all that. So it fits in just as working on my LinkedIn presence and following up on leads, answering calls for art, for juried art from associations and galleries, staying in contact with the galleries. I had an active store on Instagram, which I decommissioned. I might put that back. I have an art assistant now who can help me with that. There's only so many hours in the day. So I think that Web3 is terribly exciting. I think that hanging in there and continuing to both put up art and also to collect and support other artists is something that you can't do anywhere else. And it satisfies a different itch. I'm a very social person and I love spaces. I've made some great friends and I never thought that you could make real friends on social media, but I've tossed that and you certainly can. So how does it fit in? It fits in just like any other channel for marketing and distributing art. That's my view of it. Yeah, I would agree. And I think I've made some really great friendships <laughs> through Twitter spaces as well. This being one of them, I think it's always a pleasure to Ditto. encounter you. I'm like, oh, where's Steve talking right now? And oh, uh, I find you good. hosting spaces. I find you contributing to spaces all the time. And I've also noticed, of course, you are a huge supporter of other artists and I think you've kind of touched on it, but what really is the motivation to buy other people's art in this whole NFT space? Because I know you've collected quite a few pieces and, and you're always very helpful promoting other people's work. Well, first I have to like it. I haven't bought a piece that hasn't resonated me with. Sometimes I'll buy for a cause, whether it's Tezquake or some of the other causes that have been around. But I see people who are working incredibly hard and a lot of them don't have IRL experience and aren't enjoying the benefits of that. But their art is, I think, quite wonderful and I want to encourage them. So I'll buy. And my tendency is to buy lower priced editions rather than saying I'll buy one, one of one, and that'll be it for the month. For one ETH, I keep a kitty. Okay, I could buy a lot of other art and I could buy maybe, you know, 10, 15, or if Tez is involved, 30 pieces or 40 pieces or whatever. Once in a while, I will purchase something that I both like and I think has investment potential. I've collected a number of Basel's work, MVP, who I think is wonderful. And some of the lady in yellow, Sarah's work. Okay. And I think it has investment potential. So, I haven't flipped anything yet, but I think that being in Web3 is about creating, collecting, taking chances, and participating. And to me, that's very important. So it's it's a seamless part of my life. At first, it was like opening a weird trap door and going into another universe with all kinds of arcane words and concepts. And it was like, what is going on here? but not too old to learn. And once I mastered what's going on, it was as seamless as 
I think I'm going to go for my afternoon walk, grab my Fuji, who knows what I'll find, or sometimes neighbors report this incredible spider web. You've got to come out and see this thing and haul out the camera and my macro gear and could be, hey, there's a space or I get a DM from somebody. I just admit to this, have a look. So it's, it's about the same thing now. So it's a matter of engaging at will. I love that. Yeah, I listen to a lot of spaces when I'm out walking my dogs because they walk really slow now. <laughs> no, okay. I'm like, oh, if I'm standing around, I could you know, lose my mind and just like, oh. But yeah, it's always fun to hear the conversations going and contribute whenever possible. So I know you have, we talked about the work that you have on Sloika. Most of it is sold out. Some of it's still available. But do you have any plans to mint new work on the blockchain in the future? Not to give away any secrets, but just in general. Are you going to keep doing this? Absolutely. And I've got a few things in mind. Some more of the landscapes for Sloika. I have one that got into the national prize show that was juried by someone from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston who curates Ansel Adams and other early works, and she really liked the picture. So I'm going to put that up. That will be a Sloika mint, and I'm very comfortable on Sloika. We do have some of the Nature's Cotton Candy, and you're responsible for the title. The first thing was Nature's Layer Cake, which sold out very quickly. And then I think that the sentiments in the market have changed since then, and it's a little harder to sell out additions. So five went pretty quickly. What I'm going to do and try this is I'm going to do an open mint with 10 additions for anybody who's purchased one at prior or is going to. And I'll make it something that I normally would have put on for a reasonable price on Sloika and see if that additional thing, so you get a twofer out of it and let's see if that moves it out. You know, on the one hand, selling out, it doesn't matter. No, but does it feel good? Yeah. And is it kind of like, okay, I put this to bed here. So I'd like to do it for that reason. But yes, I have a lot of ideas for being on Sloika and I am looking forward to creating new materials and new old materials. <laughs> That's really cool. Well, we'll look forward to that for sure. So my last question, and I don't know if this is even a question because I think anyone who's listened to this whole conversation so far, if you can't hear the smile in Steve's voice, you're not <laughs> listening close enough. I just love how you have this positive feeling about your outlook on life, you know, with everything going on with crypto, with the whole banking, financial world and everything. How do you maintain this idea of hope out there in the world? Because I feel that comes from you just from listening to what you're saying. Well, thank you. And I am an optimistic person. And here's a quote which influenced me way back many years ago when I first read the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard in college, and that was a long time ago. And it's that hope is a passion for the possible. And that guides me. I think that's incredibly important because it doesn't blindly say that everything is going to be okay, okay, and that everything is going to be okay every day, and there are some things that are never going to be okay. But possibility is, I think, what drives us as humans, that as dark as things may be, that if you have a passion for the possible, that you can get through it. And I think about that almost every day. So, yeah, I think that looking at hope that way. The other thing is something that a really interesting psychologist, actually a psychiatrist, and that's Robert Livingston, said that, he said, if you have 
someone you love and you have meaningful work and you have something to look forward to, it's hard not to be happy. I would modify that, you know, as you know, I'm a bit older than you, I would say, if you have your health, okay, and you do everything that you can to maintain it, if you have someone you love, even better if they love you too, and you have meaningful work and something to look forward to, then that's a recipe for a good life. It doesn't mean that every day is going to be incredible. But if you have those essential ingredients, and I am blessed to say that I do, then that basically keeps me going every day and picking up the camera is a joy. It adds to it and it's something to look forward to. And I think that's really important. Well, that is really great. That's really great sentiment. I love that. I think we should wrap it up there. I want to say thank you again so much, Steve Bennett, for joining me today on One of One from Sloika. We will link all of your links in this podcast and I really appreciate you being here. Thanks so much. Thank you.